his salvation, part 3 from Isaiah chapter 52 verse 13 to Isaiah 53 verse 6. As we continue our series on encounters with God, we come to another, another one of those remarkable passages in Scripture. Many people actually describe uh, this chapter as being the pinnacle in the Old Testament. It, it doesn't get any higher than this. So far in our series, we have looked at individuals as they encountered God. Uh, there were Moses, Elijah, Job, Jonah. And that they, their experience was absolutely amazing as, as they encountered the, the living God. And last week we spoke of Isaiah and his remarkable vision in the temple from Isaiah chapter 6, which was also his call to the prophetic ministry. However, in our passage today, it is not a particular individual who has an encounter with God, but all of humanity. The collective is called to this encounter, to behold something amazing. It was written seven centuries before the birth of Christ, yet it tells, it describes the events of Calvary with such accuracy that the only explanation is its divine inspiration. It has to be the work of God. There is no other possible way to explain it. And because of this, on at least nine different occasions in the New Testament, the New Testament writers quoted Isaiah 53 and apply it directly to Jesus, Jesus Christ. Ultimately, the Lord is salvation. That is the name of our series. The Lord is salvation because of what is revealed here. Now, we normally describe this sacred text as Isaiah 53, but the song of the suffering servant actually starts in the previous chapter. And just to point out that the that the chapter divisions and the verses in Scripture are not inspired. They have been uh, arranged in such a way to help us study the Bible, to memorise and to, to point out, to go directly to, to a text a lot easier, a lot quicker. The song is, is composed of five stanzas or five verses and, and this, Sunday, this Sunday morning before Easter, we are looking at the first three. Then on Good Friday, we are looking at the last two. So hopefully you will be here on Good Friday morning, same time, to, uh, to finish our study on Isaiah 53. Behold the servant. Isaiah 52, 13 to 15. See my servant would act Wisely, he will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. And just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of human beings and his form marred beyond human likeness. And so he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths 
because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they were not, they have not heard, they will understand. It has been said many times, and we'll say it again, Calvary was a terrible act of treachery and the greatest miscarriage of justice that the world will ever know. But ultimately, it was the wisdom of God that led Christ to the bloody cross where the world crucified its Saviour. And, and this wisdom, this divine wisdom of God seems like total foolishness to natural sinful man. It does not make sense. And unless God removes the scales from our eyes like he did to the Apostle Paul, we will never understand this. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 2.8. This is what he said. He says, None of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And over the years there has been a lot of debate among scholars as to who is this servant, his identity. Who was he? Some say it refers to Isaiah. Others say that it refers to Israel, the whole nation of Israel. and, and, And still there are other options, especially with liberal scholars, because we all don't, we cannot possibly understand how it, how it is that 700 years before the events of Calvary that, that this could be seen as, as pointing to Calvary and in the identity of Jesus Christ. In fact, no other possible person or nation fits perfectly like Jesus. The description of the suffering servant begins in the first line, which gives us the clue, doesn't it? Uh, There are three Hebrew words here to describe uh, the servant, and and these words are used elsewhere in Isaiah uh, to describe the, the glory of God. He was raised, he was lifted, and he was highly exalted. And, they, and, and these words point to what? They point to the, the sequence of the resurrection, the ascension, and the enthronement of Christ. That's no accident. It's no coincidence. It's the way that God planned it. That's verse 13. Then suddenly in verse 14, Isaiah switches from exaltation to the many who are appalled at Christ. From the majesty to a situation where Christ becomes so degraded in appearance that he seems less than human. Nowadays we tend to hear of various well-known people, VIPs, uh, you know, politicians, sports people, millionaires, 
who, because of misdemeanors or scandals or financial hardship, whatever it might be, they are demoted, they are humiliated. And sometimes you read their story, what happened, where it all went wrong. You might have uh, followed the story of Jared Hayne and what happened to him this past week. But no one in human history has stepped down in rank and dignity to compare with Christ taking on human flesh. And it wasn't any scandal, it wasn't any sin, it wasn't any financial mismanagement, it wasn't any of that. He made himself nothing, dying like a a criminal. And we see that that descent in Philippians chapter 2. Let's face it. Our Lord died in terrible, horrible pain. There was no end-of-life care. There was no anaesthetics. There was nothing. And if you calculate the times back from about 3 o'clock in the afternoon when he died, we realise that our Lord, from the time of his arrest to the to being taken to the different uh, authorities, if we calculate the times, we realise that our Lord Jesus Christ has just been through 12 hours, 12 hours of intense physical torture. Now there's another twist in the prophecy here. The kings who were once shocked at him will one day have to shut their mouths in awe and in respect. Some of them, they will realise this side of heaven. Um, I've quoted Napoleon, for example, being one of them. While in exile, um, Napoleon came to realise that there there has never been anybody like Jesus. And if they haven't, and if they don't realise that this side of heaven... Certainly, when they stand before his judgment seat one day, they will. But the humiliation that Jesus suffered was was terrible, but it wasn't final. It It was temporary. Christ died so that his precious purifying blood might be sprinkled on many nations. His salvation would spread beyond the borders of of Israel to the rest of the world. And thank God for that. This is why Paul quotes from Isaiah 52.15 in Romans 15.21. Because the Apostle Paul could see that this is exactly the application. And as he went out beyond the the borders of Israel to, to preach the gospel to the many nations and finally giving his life in Rome, this is what kept him going. And the song here begins with many, the word many, that many are appalled in in verse 14, then many nations sprinkle in verse 15 and then in chapter 53 verse 12 towards the end, He would bear the sins of many 
And then in 53.11, many would be justified. It doesn't say everyone. It doesn't say all. But it says many. And hallelujah because it says many. Hallelujah because it doesn't just say only some. Because there's many of us here. And, and, and for the last 2,000 years there have been many, many, many who have given their lives to Christ, who have recognized the sprinkling of His blood. And one day, before the throne, Revelation tells us that for many tribes and nations, we'll all be there praising the One the lamb that was slain. And we have an image of, of nations uh, responding to the gospel. And, and nations respond to the gospel here. And, and, and we sit, sometimes see it. Whole nations come. There's a revival. We know what happened at the preaching of, of Jonah in the city of Nineveh. The whole city that was a revival, it was a breakout. But it also mentions that individuals, because ultimately we all have to come to Christ, not as a collective, but as individuals. Like Lois said, we, just because you grow in a Christian home doesn't make you a Christian. Just because you were born in a stable doesn't make you a cow. We all need a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. And no one can do that for you. Now these Gentile new believers who were sprinkled with his blood were totally transformed. Note what happened in the early church. That as the gospel went, despite the difficulty, despite the tragic circumstances and the challenges that they had to face, nothing stopped them, not persecution, not hatred, not beatings, not separation. Parents would see their kids and the, and the soldiers, the Roman soldiers, will put a, point a sword at the, at the neck of their own children. They will say, well, do you, are you going to recant from your faith? Are you going to worship Caesar? Or are we going to cut the head off your child? What would you do as a parent? Nothing stopped them. Nothing stopped them. The gospel is greater. Jesus is greater. No principalities or powers would shut them up. You kill them and their movement just keeps spreading to the ends of the earth and on and on and on it went. Today, even in countries with the harshest persecutions, people are still coming to faith. We just don't hear about it. But go to 
some of the stories on Voice of the Martyrs. How did they, how did these people who, how did they come to believe if, if, if the borders are closed and, and no missionaries able to get in, like North Korea and other places or in Iran? How did they come to believe? And many of these new converts, especially in some closed Islamic countries, tell of visions of Christ appearing to them at night. There's Jesus standing at the end of their bed. What is that? How do you explain that? And this is a fulfilment of this prophecy, isn't it? Isn't not? I mean, for what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. It all comes together. Misunderstood, chapter 53, verses 1 to 3. Misunderstood. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire, that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. It's a good question, isn't it? Who has believed our message? The answer is, we have to be honest that not many, and yet there are many. And yet when you see the, the composition of mankind at the moment, maybe 7 billion people in the whole of the earth, how many of them are Christians in a country like Australia? How many people out of 25 million, how many would, be, would we consider to be true believers? wanting to gather together as the people of God, wanting to hear the word. How many? And I think, like, sometimes I do feel like Elijah. I'm the only one left, Lord. And then God has to somehow, you know, break through and says, well, no, Elijah, there is 7,000 whose knees have not bowed. There are others, there are many others. Just because you can't see them doesn't mean they're not there. So who has believed our message? Sometimes we have to leave it up to God, but keep preaching anyway. And it is impossible for man to know to know Christ by mere observation. How does a carpenter's son end up being the son of God, particularly if you live next door to Jesus in Nazareth. I said, well, Jesus, who is he? I know his mum and dad. That's what they said about him because they wanted to demean him. Even though the, the message is given, it was not received, says verse 1. Why is it not received? Because man is dead in sin, dead in sin. In and of ourselves, we cannot come and believe. He cannot hear the message. That's what John 8 tells us. 
We cannot come to Christ unless we are drawn by God himself. John 6. Unless he calls us. Yet, the Bible also says that by faith, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. How then can anyone believe? Salvation is an amazing miracle, isn't it? And when Jesus first came, they did not understand who he was or what he was here to do. Who he was, that's his identity, and his task, what he was here to do, his mission. And, and, and these are the two areas of Christian doctrine, his personhood and his, his work, are the two areas that are always under attack by the devil and his cohorts and even under attack from the pulpit. If you don't get those things right, who he was and what he came to do, you're going to struggle. That is, you have, there is no compromise in that. You can be wrong about many things and still go to heaven, but you can't be wrong about Jesus and go to heaven. That's the tragedy of unbelief then and now. And I will not, I can tell you now, I will not lower the bar on Jesus and his work irrespective of the cost or the price. I can't do it. And some of you might get upset about that and some of my colleagues will and some of my, even within my own denomination might. But I can't. Because one day I will have to give account. Not to men, but to God. Now, let's be honest. Despite the Hollywood portrayals, Jesus lacked grand appearance, the kind that makes people immediately gravitate to him because he's so good looking. You know, he's flowing hair and the wonderful hippie type of Jesus, right? He's so cool. People just, yeah. He, doesn't, he didn't fit the face the marketeers are looking for for a magazine cover, right? The pinup boy. And, and many churches today spend quite a lot of time on the right appearance, That even as, uh, even as uh, the singers are up the front here, we have to have a, somebody from Africa, somebody from Australia, somebody from Asia, so that we, we show that we are, are a multicultural church, right? No, we just put a roster together and whoever's up there will be there. I mean, that's, we, we're not into appearances. It doesn't matter. Whoever God calls, whoever God has gifted, they're going to be there. And yet, Jesus, there was nothing else to attract us to him. Many cathedrals, many churches um, go to a great length. If you visited some of the great cathedrals around the world, they, I suppose the best way to put it is they try and recreate the majesty that Isaiah saw in Isaiah chapter 6. The majesty of, of that awesomeness of the temple. 
In contrast, the Christ we represent appeared in the world without beauty to the human eye. In fact, it was the opposite. People didn't want to even look at him. When Isaiah speaks of Jesus as a man of suffering or, so- or sorrows, he's, he's not referring to him being constantly sad and melancholic. Let's get that right. You know, you, you, you hear some of his parables and some of his teaching and, and you cannot, you know, I, I can imagine the people just rolling on the floor at, at the comparisons he was making, the teaching. But there is, we don't read in the Bible that Jesus ever smiled or laughed. We don't read about that. We can assume that he did, but, but the Gospels never mention it. Why? Because his whole life was marked by suffering. His mission was too serious to be just dismissive about it. Every word was chosen. Every remark, every teaching, his every behaviour was deliberate. He wasn't mucking around. And, and he says we held him in low esteem. It means that it, it, it actually means more than we just didn't appreciate who he was. It means more than that. It, it's something like he's a nobody to us. And the Hebrew word means that they added up all the facts and came to a settled conclusion. And this is what the Jews these Jewish leaders did with Jesus. They added it all up and decided that Jesus was worth 30 pieces of silver. That's how much he was worth. What is Jesus worth to to the world today? Um, Most, I suppose, would have no problem with Jesus being the, the great high priest. This is a concept they probably don't understand too much or care about, but it doesn't matter. As long as he's locked up somewhere in some temple, some church, somewhere there, as long as Jesus is there and he just lets me get on with my life, all right? He doesn't, doesn't interfere with my plans and my pleasures. I'll call on him, I'll I'll go to church, I'll call on him when I need him, but just stay there, okay? Don't, yeah. That's Jesus the High Priest. Another non-offensive title is the Prince of Peace, which is true, of course, which sounds good to almost everyone. We all believe in world peace. At the moment you tell them, God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ, Romans 2.16. They all get upset. Who does he think he is? I don't need anybody judging me. Which is pretty much what they said 2,000 years ago. But people can handle a meek Jesus who knows his limits, who teaches good morals, we all agree upon, who plays with little children, He makes no hard demands or extravagant claims like divine origin and all that stuff. Better still, as long as he remains nailed to a cross, 
he is no threat to us, is he? What most people struggle with is in, in coming to terms is with a Christ who is both saviour and judge. The one who is ascended on high, given all authority on heaven or on earth, and will one day return to judge the living and the dead. That's the Jesus that I follow. Now the sin bearer in verses 4 to 6. Surely he took up our pain and bore our sufferings. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We, all like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Why am I doing the emphasis? Because that's exactly what it means. It is remarkable that despite God's perfect justice, that those who were once so wrong about him, this is the just God, that those who were once so wrong about him are not cancelled and not forever excluded, shoved to one side, but they are, give, they are the ones given an opportunity to repent. And many did and are doing today just that. And their words, this is in the words of those who have repented, who have accepted, who have acknowledged that Christ is the Saviour. Their words now are a testimony. Their words exude this very personal, grateful testimony of a, of a new understanding of Christ. At first they had no idea that God had sent him and that the punishment of God they thought was really directed because he had done something bad. But no, they were directed at him for them. Because of them. The troubles Christ experienced and the infirmities he bore, the torture, were not his own, but were for those he came to save. In all that he suffered, he was doing this. Let's change it from them. He was doing it for us. And this is why the doctrine of substitutionary atonement is so argued back and forth and attacked by the enemy and his cohorts, even from the pulpit. The death of Christ is not merely exemplary It is substitutionary for you and me. Os Guinness um, tells the following story in one of his books. And uh, in in one of the periodic efforts to, during the time of the Soviet Union, in one of the periodic efforts to eradicate religious belief in the Soviet Union, the Communist Party sent the KGB 
uh, agents to the, to the nation's churches on Sunday morning. And they would do this quite often. And, and one agent was struck by the deep conviction of an elderly woman who was kissing the feet of a life-size carving of Christ on the cross. Babushka! Babushka, uh, he said. Babushka means grandmother. Are you also prepared to kiss the feet of the beloved General Secretary of our great Communist Party? Why, of course, came the the reply. But only if you crucify him first. (laughs) Isaiah moves um, in verse 5 to the core of the problem. Two words here are used for sin. Uh, Transgression, which shows how much our sin is against God. Transgression. And the second word is iniquity. It shows us, iniquity shows how ungodly, unholy and dirty in the sight of God our sin makes us to be. So this word iniquity, actually, if you read the Psalms, when you read the Psalms, this word iniquity appears quite often. And, and this is what King David prayed some 300 years, 300 years before Isaiah in Psalm 51 verse 2. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And of course that was fulfilled a thousand years later in Calvary on the cross. Now God cannot maintain his perfect standard of holiness. He cannot maintain his glory if he is passive about our sin. Basically, he could not be God. We could not respect him because he would change. He would just, his standards will go up and down, left and right, according to the opinion polls of the day. God is not like that. And how can we be so comfortable with that which utterly appalls him? What we are seeing today is not just a watering down of Scripture but a watering down of God's character. Many do this to try and fit to this constantly shifting standard of the world. It goes this way, it goes that way. And but in the end, what happens, even when Christians do this, in the end, is that they will find themselves rejected by God and rejected by the world. A bit like Jonah. Going to be thrown overboard. Because under God's judgment, sin has one uniform penalty. And what is the penalty for sin? It is death. Whether it's a great sin, whether it's a little sin, whether it's a big lie or a little lie, it's sin. The penalty is the same. And and last week we saw in Isaiah chapter 6 that when Isaiah was confronted by the holiness of God in the temple, what did he say? He said, I am ruined. Woe is me. I've had it. It's, It's an honest, humble response 
And this response has to be universal because we have all sinned and fallen short of the God, of the glory of God. All of us. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Now, I'm sure you've had the, you've, you, you would have heard the expression, um, God loves the sinner but hates the sin. Uh, you've probably used it. I might have used it. While it sounds nice, God loves the sinner but hates the sin. And it might actually be a quick answer, one of those pithy answers just to get you out, out of an argument or somebody who might be attacking your faith. But I have problems. I have problems with this statement. You, you step back a bit and you say, well, is that absolutely right when you say that? God loves the sinner but hates the sin. I have problems with it, especially when you consider it in the light of eternal consequences. You see, this is what it comes to. God does not send sins to hell. He sends sinners to hell. You get that? Our sins were real. Therefore, the punishment on Jesus was real. It's not like somehow there is this this physical uh, bag that Jesus carried on on, in, in the form of a cross or even on his back and and, and, and said, okay, that's, that, this bag, rep- these rocks represent the sins of the world and this is why Jesus looks so tired. No, he bore the sins. He was punished. He was crucified. He bore it in himself because sin affects us Physically emotionally, internally, spiritually. Our sins were real, therefore the punishment on him was real. The atoning death is not just talk. It was the killing of a man who had come to endure the wrath of God because of you and me. Listen to what he went through. He was pierced as with a spear. He was crushed, pulverized, broken, ground to pieces, crushed. The punishment, the punishment, the the beating with a whip. And by his wounds, his stripes, his body was cut, it was bruised. His skin, his flesh was coming off to the point where the ribs were exposed. In Isaiah chapter 6, we spoke on the impossible task that the prophet had to do. After he said, here I am, send me. Yep. Then he was given his mission. Spoke about this last week. And in human terms, Isaiah's ministry was going to be a failure. So here we are and ask the same strange question. Based on everything described so far, everything we read, was Jesus a failure? 
in human terms. And, and on, in human terms, purely human terms, the way that people assess things these days, we would have to say yes. Why? Because humans continue to fall for mere appearances. The wonderful thing is that Jesus' death was not the end of the story. Jesus did not fail in what he came to do. He perfectly fulfilled the loving Father's will in every possible way. It could not be more perfect, more planned, more wise, more significant, more eternally changing. What should be our response? Well, in the words of the hymn, let me conclude. O to grace, how great a debtor, daily I am constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Amen.